If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 8, verse 23 to 27. Or you can follow along on the screens. It's Matthew 8, 23 to 27. Hi, my name is Peter Cho, and I'm one of the interns here at Cornerstone. And today I have the privilege of sharing God's word with you. So we're currently in a sermon series entitled The Authority of Christ in Matthew. And last week we had the privilege of hearing Pastor Andrew's message on Jesus cleansing the leper. And today I will be speaking on Jesus calming the storm. So if you can, please stand with me as your act of worship to read and receive God's holy word from Matthew 8, 23 to 27. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, thank you for giving us another day to come together and worship you. Lord, many of us are tired and distracted, but I pray that your spirit would give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word. And Lord, you know how much I've wrestled and toiled with our passage today, but all of this is meaningless without the help from your spirit. So Lord, I pray for strength and humility as I stand on this pulpit. And as I preach your word, I pray that you would increase and that everything else would decrease. So Lord, we love you and we thank you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the past few years, there's been a huge influx of superhero movies. And when the conversation about favorite superheroes comes up, it seems like the same names are always mentioned. Batman, Superman, Spider-Man, Wonder Woman. One thing I've noticed, though, is that Aquaman is never mentioned. <laughs> Now, if you don't know who Aquaman is, he's a superhero best known for his ability to communicate to underwater creatures and manipulate bodies of water. And I still remember when I first heard about Aquaman, I remember thinking, man, that guy has such useless superpowers. <laughs> now, the image of Jesus calming the storm in today's text reminded me of Aquaman. However, today we will learn about how Jesus is not merely a superhero, but how Jesus has revealed himself as the Lord over creation. 
In our passage today, we will learn this gospel truth. We will encounter storms in our lives when we follow Christ, but we should trust in him because he is Lord over the storm. We will encounter storms in our lives when we follow Christ, but we should trust in him because he is Lord over the storm. Today's message will be broken up into four parts. Number one, the come before the storm. Two, the real and powerful storm. Three, the revealing power of the storm. And number four, the power over the storm revealed. Point number one, the come before the storm. So let's consider the events of Jesus' ministry so far. Chapter seven of Matthew ends with Jesus finishing the Sermon on the Mount. And as we learned last week, Matthew 8 introduces Jesus' first three miracles healing various types of people, including the leper, the centurion's servant, and Apostle Peter's mother. And after healing these people, Let's take a look at what happens next in verses 18 and 19. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, some of you may be familiar with the great navigation app called Waze. One function that particularly makes this app so useful is that it allows drivers to inform other users of any dangers or obstructions that they may encounter on the road ahead of them. There were warnings for potholes, flooded roads, and even dead animals, and I remember that <laughs> One time, there was, um, there was a time that I was driving down an unfamiliar street in the city, and it was dark, and it was raining, and I couldn't really see the road ahead of me. And as I was driving, Waze suddenly told me that there was a pothole coming up on the road ahead of me. So immediately, I slowed down, leaned forward, and my eyes began to scan the road ahead of me. And sure enough, I saw this massive pothole that could have easily swallowed up my whole car. But I was able to nav navigate around this pothole and successfully get to my destination. You see, just like Waze helped me get to my destination by giving me a clearer expectation of my journey, Jesus responds to these potential disciples by giving them a clear expectation of what it meant to follow him. He declared in Matthew 8:20 that foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests but the son of man has no place to lay his head. You see, Jesus was telling these determined men that if they were to become his disciples, 
that they would encounter dangers and obstructions on the road ahead of them, and that following him meant living a life similar to homelessness, a life that is unsheltered, unprotected, and vulnerable to the environmental threats and dangers around them. And even during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told his listeners to enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Matthew 7, 13 and 14. So it's clear that the nature of Jesus' calling to follow him, it wasn't an enticing one. A life of prosperity and comfort. But rather, it was a life of hardship and discomfort. And the disciples we see following Jesus in verse 23 of today's passage are the ones who still chose to follow him after counting the cost. Brothers and sisters, have you counted the cost of choosing Christ? Or do you deny the dangers that discipleship demands? What does your destination look like? So, almost immediately after this group of dedicated men follow Jesus into the boat, we learn that they encounter a real and powerful storm, which brings me to point number two. When we follow Jesus, there will be real and powerful storms in our lives. Now, to understand how severe the storm was, verse 24 tells us that this was a great storm and that the boat was being swamped by the waves and that it left these disciples afraid for their lives. The author, Matthew, actually uses the Greek word seismos to describe this storm, which is literally translated to an earthquake. It's where we get our English word seismic from, as in seismic activity. It's the same word that's used to describe the end times in Matthew 24, 7, when Jesus says, there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. It's the same word that's used in Matthew 27, 54 to describe the earthquake that split the temple at the moment of Jesus' death. So, Matthew was telling us that there was seismic activity on the sea. Now, when we try to visualize what the storm might have looked like, we might be tempted to imagine Jesus and his disciples floating on a tiny little rowboat in these giant ocean waves. But we have to consider a couple things. First, the Sea of Galilee isn't an ocean. It's a lake. 
Second, the boat was definitely big enough to safely carry all the men aboard. As a matter of fact, the boat would have actually been about 30 feet long. And the third thing to consider is that most of these scared disciples, they were actually fishermen. Matthew chapter 4 actually shows us that the disciples, Peter and his brother Andrew and James and his brother John, were fishing in the Sea of Galilee when Jesus called them to follow him. So they were definitely familiar with the harsh conditions of the sea, but yet the storm still scared them. So basically, this wasn't any ordinary storm. It isn't like the storms we've been having recently, like the one last week. No, this storm that the disciples faced was massive. And it isn't a coincidence that these disciples encountered this real and powerful storm as soon as they decide to follow Jesus. Some preachers of the prosperity gospel will preach that when we follow Jesus, there won't be any storms in our lives. Amen? They'll say, Jesus would never lead us into any storms. Can I get a hallelujah? You see, if this were true, verse 24 would look more like this. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, the sky cleared up and there was a cool and gentle breeze and Jesus and the disciples had a great trip across the Sea of Galilee and then the men lived happily ever after. However, we know that that was not the case. The Bible actually shows us that God's people still face troubles and trials even when they're obeying him. For example, Joseph faced false imprisonment after fleeing from Potiphar's wife, and the Israelites faced the Red Sea while fleeing from Egypt. These people were obeying God, yet they faced trouble and hard times. Now, this doesn't mean that we should be reckless and intentionally look for trials, but that we should not expect clear sailing in our Christian walk. Brothers and sisters, what do you believe? Do you believe that the call to follow Christ looks like a life of rainbows and butterflies and that becoming a Christian means living a life of pleasure and prosperity? Or do you believe in Jesus' own words that following him won't be easy and that we will encounter real and powerful storms in our lives? So brothers and sisters, if you're going through troubles and trials right now in your life, don't lose heart. You're not lost.
And this is my third point, the revealing power of the storm. God will use the storms in our lives to reveal fear and doubt hidden in our hearts. According to the World Atlas, 95% of the world's oceans have not yet been discovered. They haven't been explored. And although scientists and ocean explorers have made significant breakthroughs in the last decade, they still have yet to reach the deepest parts of the sea. One thing you may not know about me is that I have thalassophobia, which is a fear of deep water. Now, I'm not talking about the deep end of a swimming pool, but large lakes and oceans. And surprisingly, I actually enjoy riding boats and I can even swim on most beaches, but this fear kicks in the moment I stare into the dark and bottomless abyss of the sea and I begin to think about its mysterious nature. You see, my phobia isn't a fear of merely drowning to death or getting, getting eaten by a shark, but it's a fear of not knowing what lurks in the seas, what creatures lie in the pits of the ocean floors, and how many lives the waters may have claimed. And a majority of people in these ancient cultures actually shared this fear of the sea as well. Now, we learned that the storm in today's passage was real and powerful. This storm wasn't used as a metaphor or an illustration to describe other trials that the disciples were currently in. It wasn't used to describe a serious stomachache that they may have had, or problems back at home, or maybe even conflicts with the other disciples. No, this was a real and powerful storm. However, this storm had the power to reveal the fear and doubt hidden in these disciples' hearts. The fear of death, the fear of pain, the fear of uncertainty, the unknown. So the winds and the waves are going crazy. The boat is about to sink and to make matters even worse for the disciples, verse 24 reveals that Jesus is sleeping. And you may be wondering, how could Jesus have been sleeping? Was he pretending to sleep? Was he narcoleptic? Well, the truth is that Jesus was sleeping because he was just really tired. You see, Jesus had just done all of this ministry back to back and he needed rest like the rest of us. But this isn't the only reason why Jesus was able to sleep. Because Jesus knew the Father and had complete trust in him, Jesus was able to rest peacefully. Even despite knowing that a storm would be coming, Jesus was able to rest peacefully. And when the disciples saw that their leader was asleep, 
Their fears grew stronger and their doubt began to shake their faith. They were probably thinking, I know that Jesus is able to save us, but how can he save us if he doesn't know what's going on? And doesn't it feel like that for us sometimes? Like Jesus is sleeping when we encounter storms in our lives and we need his guidance. So what do these disciples do next? In verse 25, we see them wake Jesus up and cry out for his help. They say, save us, Lord. We are perishing. And it's fascinating to see how Jesus responds to their pleas. Jesus wakes up from his sleep and says to them, Why are you so afraid, O you of little faith? What? Wait, wasn't going to Jesus the right thing to do? Let's be honest, how many of us would have done the same if we were on that boat? I mean, even just before following Jesus into the boat, in Matthew 8:10, we can see that Jesus complimented the centurion for his great faith. In both instances, these men had faith in Christ, and they both asked him for help. But what makes these two situations so different? You see, the centurion had faith in Christ even though he didn't witness any of Jesus' miracles. He was walking by faith and not by sight. The disciples, on the other hand, they had just witnessed Jesus performing all of these miracles moments before and were even willing to follow him. But their doubt disrupted their determination and their faith fell with fear. They boarded the boat and thought they could be brave, but once they looked out and saw the sea shake, their deep faith turned to cries of, Lord, please save. You see, by calling him Lord, the disciples acknowledged that Jesus was the right person to go to. They knew that he had authority as the Messiah, the Son of God. However, we can tell by their pleas that their fear of death became bigger than their security in Christ. They were asking him to save them because they wanted to preserve their life. These disciples were so distracted by their situation that they lost sight of Jesus and they forgot who he was. And how many of us react to the storms in our lives the same way that these disciples did? I know I do. Maybe you just lost your job. 
Or maybe your significant other just broke up with you. Or maybe you're going through health problems or facing financial difficulties right now. But brothers and sisters, instead of drowning ourselves in fear and worry and crying out for help when the waters of life get rough, what would it look like if we remembered who God is and trusted in his promises during these times? And this is my last point, the power over the storm revealed. After the disciples wake Jesus up and he criticizes their doubt, Verse 26 shows us that Jesus calms the storm by rebuking the winds and the sea. Now, there is a natural pecking order in many aspects of our lives. And usually we could identify someone's level of authority by their words and their actions towards other people. For example, a child does not have authority over his parents. He can't force them to eat their vegetables and put them in timeout if they don't listen to him. And a student does not give her teacher assignments and have the authority to pass or fail them. And an entry-level employee cannot tell his CEO what to do and fire her for not meeting his demands. You see, just as we're able to identify a person's level of authority through their words and their actions, by rebuking the storm, Jesus reveals that he is the master of the created order of the universe. You see, Jesus had just displayed his authority over sickness and disease through his first three miracles. But this was the first time that Jesus displayed his power over nature. The first time that his supreme authority and lordship over all creation was revealed. Jesus doesn't row the boat out of the storm. Or he doesn't beg or convince the winds and sea to calm down. I mean, although rowing the boat to safety or being able to even convince the storm to go away would have still been impressive, Jesus speaks to the storm. And then there was an immediate calm. How is this possible? You see, brothers and sisters, Jesus is not a man. He is not a superhero, but Jesus is God. He doesn't need to ask anybody else for their help, or he doesn't need to go and collect infinity stones to snap the storm away. You see, Jesus created the universe and everything in it. 
Colossians 1.16 tells us, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And is a creator not greater than his creation? Jesus is the ruler, the sustainer, and the Lord of all creation. And everything in this world submits to his authority. How many of us tend to forget that Jesus Christ has ultimate authority over all creation? We may acknowledge him as a shepherd, a healer, a teacher, but we should always remember that Jesus is God. And just as the disciples marveled in verse 27, saying, what sort of man is this that even wind and sea obey him? We should fix our eyes on who Christ is and be driven to both fear and awe. Now, there's an Old Testament story that's strikingly similar with our passage today. In Jonah 1, 4 to 16, we can see that a great storm arose, the ship was about to sink, and the men were afraid. And we can see that Jonah was sleeping because he feared the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. And then we can see that the storm became calm after Jonah was thrown into it. You see, this story of Jonah was merely a shadow of the Messiah who was still yet to come, Jesus Christ. And in Matthew 20, 12, 41, Jesus affirms this by declaring that something greater than Jonah is here, referring to himself. And even just by comparing and contrasting these two passages, we know that this is true. Jonah was able to sleep through the storm because he trusted in God. Jesus was able to sleep through the storm because he was God. Jonah calmed the storm by commanding the men to throw him overboard, and Jesus, Jesus calmed the storm by his command. And we know that Jesus' work did not stop at revealing himself as the Lord of creation. But that the Lord of creation laid his life down and died for us, his creatures. Why? The reason is this. Because he loved us. 
So brothers and sisters, when it begins to rain and pour in your life, remember Christ who reigns and poured out his life. Look to him, the one with authority over the storm. Look to him, the one who loved us enough to give up his life. Look to him, brothers and sisters. Look to him. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word today, and we thank you that you are a God who isn't distant from us, but a Father that continues to teach us and strengthen us every day. And Lord, as you've told us, this call to follow you is not easy. And some of us may even be facing storms in our lives right now and wrestling with anxiety and fear. But you are Lord over the storm. So Father, I pray that you would help us to lift our eyes from the problems around us and to look to you and the eternal glory that you have promised us. Lord, I thank you for this church cornerstone and I pray, Lord, that you will continue to shape and mold these brothers and sisters in their faith so that you will be pleased and glorified. I also pray for our brothers Dan and Paul who will be delivering your word in the next few weeks and for Pastor Andrew who you've called to lead and guide us. May they be faithful as you are faithful to us. We thank you and pray this in your son's mighty name. Amen. Receive now the benediction. Now may the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the love of God the Father Almighty, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, both now and forevermore. Amen. Friends, would you hear the words of dismissal? Let us go forth to serve the world as those who love our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Go in peace, friends. Yeah.